welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Hello, and welcome to another episode of People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Caitlin McCarthy, and I'm the Director of Education, Associates, and Corporate Partnerships here at ELI. When we think about environmental law, the focus can often be on the major environmental statutes, but there are certainly many issues that pervade and affect our communities and environments across the country that expand beyond those parameters. Issues that require innovation and intentional approaches, especially in regards to environmental justice. Here at the Environmental Law Institute, we are committed to making the law work for people, places, and the planet. But what can be done when the law doesn't work for people, places, or the planet? Such is often the case with environmental justice issues, and specifically today, racial environmental health inequalities. An example of this can be seen in everyday beauty and personal care products. Joining me today to discuss disproportionate exposure from toxic beauty products, environmental justice, and more is Dr. Neha Tasik, a medical editor and writer with WebMD, who is board certified in both internal medicine and lifestyle medicine. Previously, she worked as a primary care doctor at the Department of Veterans Affairs and as an assistant professor of medicine at Emory University. As a founding member of Georgia Clinicians for Climate Action, she works to educate local communities dealing with health impacts of environmental pollution. She is a 2021 Public Voices Fellow with the Op-Ed Project and Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and she lives in Atlanta with her husband and children. Neha, we're so thrilled to have you here lending your amazing expertise in these topics. Thank you so much. Hi, Caitlin. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. We're glad you're here. So I want to kick us off. Um, can we start a bit more on your background? I'd love for you to tell us more about your previous work, school, residency, how you got to where you are today. Did you always have an environmental health and justice focus, or were there any major instances that pointed you in that direction? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, really on the banks of a highly polluted river, um, which has, was always sort of part of uh, my family's consciousness. Um, and then I went off to college in beautiful, lush Cambridge, Massachusetts at Harvard, and then came back to the city, to New York City, for medical school and internal medicine residency at Cornell's Weill Medical College. And it's interesting because while I was training in medicine, the environment really faded into the background. Um, we don't really learn about it much in school as it relates to sort of health impacts. Um, and we weren't really asking our questions, our patients questions about, you know, the environment that they were living in. And, you know, personally, we had a tunnel that went straight from our dorms to the hospital. And I sometimes didn't even see outside for days or weeks at a time. So the environment really kind of faded into the background for me until I started practicing as a primary care doc um, with veterans. And I took a job really working with vulnerable veterans who had a lot of medical problems, who were coming to the hospital or to the clinic really frequently and trying to get to the root cause of what we could do to help them. 
And that's where I really started looking at, you know, initially social determinants of health. That was a huge focus for my team. And then as we kind of really kept looking at root causes, we, we came to environmental determinants. So what are people actually breathing on a daily basis? Where are they living? Um, and why is it that some people um, are living in safer places than others? Um, and then when it comes to personal care products, I will say on a personal level, that really hit home when I had my children. So I think about 10 years ago, I had my first and I used to slather her up with anything and everything as long as it smelled good. And then I just had my last, my third one about a year ago, and I'm hyper vigilant now about what I put on her. So that's really kind of the evolution of how I've learned myself about how these environmental impacts affect our health. Wow, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. It definitely sounds like the tunnel could be a metaphor too for just being so focused on kind of what's in front of us that, you know, we are missing pieces of this kind of underexplored topic. So could you tell me a little bit more about what are some of the hazardous chemicals that are in personal care products? What health harms are linked to them? So there are tens of thousands of chemicals that are being used in, in personal care products, and, and not all of them have been linked to hazards. But there are certainly some that have some more evidence about concerns for health harms. So some of these include chemicals like formaldehyde or derivatives that kind of break down and release formaldehyde. Um, so you could find these in a lot of hair products, in certain shampoos, um, and the risks there are linked with cancer. And then there are other chemicals that we hear a lot about in personal care products called parabens and, and phthalates, and those are known as endocrine disruptors. And I can stop there and just kind of give a little bit of background on what that means, if, if, if that would be helpful. Yes, definitely. So endocrine disruptors are essentially any chemical that's interfering with our hormones and how our hormones work within our body. So they can do that either by increasing or decreasing what should be a normal hormone level in our system. They can also mimic the body's natural hormones. So where your estrogen might land on a receptor and activate certain things in your body, now you have these chemicals coming into your body and they look and they fit similarly onto that receptor. So now they're activating an area that shouldn't necessarily be activated. So for example, um, some girls, if you have early estrogen exposure, um, can have periods before they should, or they can have early breast development. So you can imagine over the course of a lifetime, if this has happened really early, then you have higher risks later in life for things like breast cancer. So that's why we're really concerned about um, studying the effects of endocrine disruptors. So just coming back to some of the um, chemicals that can be endocrine disruptors, we know parabens, we know phthalates can function like that, and they're often found, especially phthalates, in color cosmetics, lotions that have fragrance, and then body washes. And then a chemical that's getting a lot of 
attention now is something called PFAS. Um, so this is a really hard to pronounce word, but essentially it's per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. So we will definitely stick with PFAS, but these are sort of over 4,000 different chemical compounds that are used in cosmetics because of their water resistant properties and their durability. So you'll see them in mascaras and other products where they're really touting the benefits of being water resistant or tear resistant, um, really long lasting. Um, but they have been linked according to the CDC to dangers like kidney, liver damage and immune system problems and and they also can affect our development and uh, reproductive health thanks Neha. we've definitely been really focused on pfas here at eli and i think a lot of our listeners will be folks you know really interested and in, and maybe who are working in that area but how interesting to hear it from this other perspective because so much of what we see have seen is PFAS, you know, in packaging, PFAS in um, different things that firefighters are using, but the idea that it's something, you know, that people could be putting on their eyes, you know, on maybe a daily basis is pretty shocking. So some of the products um, or the chemicals, I should say, that you named for these products are, are known carcinogens. So why do we have to stop at saying that they're linked? Why can't we say that these chemicals you know, these are health harms that are caused by toxic beauty products. So this is a great question, and it's something I really struggle with when I'm trying to talk to patients about why we need to be mindful or what the potential harms could be. So it's really hard to prove causality with a lot of environmental toxic substances. Um, you know, one of the ways that I try to explain it, it's sort of like go, coming up on a four-way intersection that doesn't have any stop signs. So we can see that this is probably a risky situation, but it's hard to prove that that crash that happened is because um, of the fact that there are no stop signs. So someone might say, well, th this one happened because someone was texting. Uh, and this one happened because a kid decided to go on a joyride, right? But it's really hard to prove that it happened because there are no stop signs until you can show, well, these two intersections, completely similar. We have a lot of traffic. This intersection that doesn't have stop signs has so many more crashes than this one that that does have stop signs right so it's kind of like with environmental toxins you don't have that much traffic necessarily so you don't you're not able to prove that it's the direct link does that make sense definitely it sounds like there are so many components to environmental factors when it comes to health I'm assuming it's difficult to prove, you know, that, oh, well, this must have come from the makeup you're using every day, et cetera, when there's so many other stressors that it could also be. But that doesn't mean that makeup, et cetera, could be playing a large role. Exactly. Right. So it, it's it's sort of like there's so many other factors that until you can pair out all the other variables, and until you can really do a randomized, controlled experiment, it's really hard to say that this caused 
the health harm. But the more and more you see it, uh, the more closely you can link these harms together. Definitely. And I will say our lawyers listening in will be nodding their heads in agreement on our discussion of causality. I do want to shift to something that I think we've begun talking about a bit too, which is how does health inequity enter the picture when it comes to toxic beauty? Yeah, so this uh, can happen for a whole host of reasons. So I think a lot of you know, environmental justice, we sometimes think is just rooted in geography, but toxic beauty products and hazardous chemicals and personal care products really show us it's, it really can be things that are in the everyday world around us that we're taking with us. So some of the reasons are essentially that studies show that women of color use more beauty products and the beauty products that they use, unfortunately, disproportionately expose them to more hazardous chemicals compared to white women. That's one major issue. Another is that the marketing of certain beauty products. So there are some studies. One was done in December of 2016 that showed that there are over a thousand products that are marketed specifically to black women. And the study also found that fewer of those products were made without those hazardous ingredients compared to the products that are available for or marketed to white women. So that's one. And then another reason for the inequity um, is that people have other exposures in their lives. So it's not just the toxic or hazardous chemicals, but it's the cumulative effect of also being in areas where you're exposed to these environmental pollutants from the world around you in the air and the water. That's definitely much more in line with, you know, our understanding of the traditional definition of environmental justice being this geographic, physical, increased burden of pollution, you know, in one's community. So I think there is a noticeable shift from you, from other advocates to move this definition into a wider understanding of it's not just where your community is located and therefore your exposure to pollution, but really what exposure to pollution you have in your day-to-day life that is disproportionate falling under the umbrella of environmental justice. That's right. And, and what are some of the reasons that you may choose that, um, these products? Um, compared to, you know, someone that doesn't have, doesn't face these inequities. So is it marketing? Is it that there's a beauty standard that's different that sort of encourages use of products that are, are potentially more hazardous? So I know that in my community, I'm Indian American, um, there's a lot of marketing of skin creams that um, basically lighten your skin. Um, and those creams are known to have more hazardous chemicals within them. So that's related to, you know, what kind of are these other reasons? That's a perfect example to highlight some of the things that we found, you know, in our research preparing for our lovely podcast today. There's quite a bit in, in hair products and hair relaxers. Could you speak a little bit on the socioeconomic status or other factors that are at play here? Sure. So, I, you know, I think that 
one of the things is, is, is thinking about it in terms of what are the products that people are using regardless of their socioeconomic status. So, for example, there was a study um, that was done in a black women uh, compared to white women, and it found that regardless of socioeconomic status, um, black women had higher levels of phthalates. So we already talked about those as endocrine disruptors than white than their white counterparts. So the question then was, is this certain types of beauty products that are used as hair relaxers or as skin creams? There's evidence that black women may use more uh, vaginal hygiene products. So is that include phthalates. So is that a potential reason that you see higher levels regardless of socioeconomic status? So let's take a step back here for a moment, because I'm sure our listeners and definitely me too, you know, we're really wanting to know why on earth are any of these chemicals allowed? You know, why are they approved? You've highlighted with us that the European Union has set rules, you know, over more than 1,400 hazardous chemicals. The process in the U.S. is, you know, maybe not as strict as it is in the EU, but why is it that all of these chemicals have approved use in, you know, daily use that could be affecting people in this way? Yeah, th that's a great question. I think that we are all under the impression that um, that these things are being regulated and that they're being approved to be included um, in these products. Uh, but we have to remember that uh, essentially in the U.S., the use and labeling of cosmetic ingredients is regulated by an act from 1938, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of 1938. Um, and then also there was a newer law, the Fair Packaging and Labeling Act of 1967. So really those two laws um, are, are really the only ones that provide any regulatory framework for newer chemicals that have, have been developed more recently. So there's also no framework for the cosmetics industry to be regulated by the FDA. Um, most of it is done through self-regulation. So if industry groups um, decide or they sort of study a chemical and determine that it is not hazardous, then that's what uh, the regulatory groups will go by, that evidence, and then allow it to be incorporated and included in our cosmetics or other personal care products. Sounds like it's time for an update. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. This reminds me quite a bit of another area of focus we have here at ELI, which is on the Toxic Substances Control Act. Um, you're likely familiar with it, but up until, I believe, 2016 with the Lautenberg Amendments, Tosca had not been touched in, in 40 years. And with those new amendments, you know, language was included specifically on potentially exposed or susceptible subpopulations. So it would be amazing to see some sort of new language and updates to the legislation you're talking about in terms of toxic beauty and 
and overseeing kind of the laws that mandate this and testing and updating it from the 1930s to modern day, it would be so great to see any updates like that really to focus on the same thing on potentially exposed or susceptible subpopulations, I feel like would be a good fit in reducing environmental justice impacts. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that right now, currently, there are only 11 hazardous chemicals that are regulated by the FDA, and we certainly need newer protections that allow us to sort of meet up with with some of the rules that are currently um, the way they're structured within the EU and other parts of the world. So what about clean or natural beauty products? And I'm saying those in quotes. Are those mm-hmm. a safer option? What does what does clean in quotes really mean? So, I, you know, I think that this is a really important question. And I think when I first started thinking about it, this is what I gravitated to was a product that on the front label said it was green or natural or non-toxic. But, get, but again, just like we've been talking about, we don't really have federally mandated or really any kind of regulations around who can use these terms. So it's not necessarily something that's going to protect us if we're looking for green on the label. Um, What we really need to be thinking more about is what's on the back, so what's in the ingredient list. And what ingredients should people be looking out for? You know, you've you noted earlier that there's 10,000 chemicals, let's say, that all have either bad or not great effects. You know, what can what can consumers really be on the lookout for to try and make the safest choices? So I think about this in a couple of ways. So one, there are certain key words that you might want to look for. Um, so if you see words that include paraben in them, that's probably an, a product that you don't want to use. If you see a product that has DEA, um, which is diethanolamine, um, which is also a type of chemical used in, in cosmetics, um, that's a, a product that you might want to avoid. Products that include fragrance, um, because fragrance, it's very difficult to know what the artisanal mix um, is that is used to create that fragrance. What chemicals did they use to create that fragrance? And generally, um, chemicals used to create fragrance can have have been linked to certain health harms. So though that those kinds of broad categories can be helpful. But beyond that, it's really hard personally on the individual level. Now, I'm a health professional that is highly interested in this subject, and it's really hard for me to understand all the words that are in the ingredients list. So I generally look for those. Then I go to um, certain websites that are trusted. So the Environmental Working Group has a cosmetics database called Skin Deep. So I will look there to find products that are have been rated to be safer. Um, and then beyond that, I have sort of this system within my own head. So it's sort of important to remember that in general, women in the United States 
um, when, when it's studied and looked at, we use an average of about 12 personal care products every single day. If you look at teenagers, that goes up to 17. So really kind of taking an inventory of what are you putting on your body. I always tell my patients that don't think of your skin or your child's skin as a shield. Think of it as a sponge. It is really absorbing anything that you're putting on top of it. So just like you think about with recycling, that you know, the three R's of sustainability, reduce, reuse, recycle. For this, really think about your first R as refuse. Do you need to use this product? Um, so for me, some of the things that I at this point just refuse are hair straighteners or hair relaxers. I think it's it's safer to use heat to straighten your hair than to put chemicals um, to do that, just because we know there are so many hazardous chemicals in, in hair straighteners. So the first is really to refuse. Just try to cut out anything that you don't absolutely need to use. Then the second is reduce. So where is it that you can find ways to not use something every single day? Do you have to use foundation every day? Do you have to use that long-lasting mascara every day? If not, figure out instances where you do need to use it and then try to reduce how often you use it. Um, and then I feel like I hit the jackpot recently because I found um, for my 10-year-old a deodorant that not only has safe ingredients, but it's, it's basically delivered through cardboard. So when it's when it's finished, we can recycle um, the packaging as well. So that saves us on the back end because we have to also remember with health disparities, a lot of it is how we um, discard these products. They go into landfills and communities that are now exposed to those chemicals through soil and through inhalation. So when you can do all that you can to even reduce the packaging, you're also protecting and, and reducing that disparity in a small way. This is such a great, great list of suggestions. I feel like I'm going to email you after this and get a list of every product you use, don't use, but I appreciate this so much. I also wanted to note, you know, just now you definitely shifted the conversation from this is what we can do as individuals to these are the larger impacts, you know, and talking about pollution, recycling, et cetera. What do you think can, should be done on a wider level, whether that's through increased government regulation, whether that's through new rules at the FDA, et cetera, that can really approach this more systematically so there isn't so much burden on the individual which can be a big factor in environmental justice issues. Yeah, I think that this is a, a great question. So I think that we really need to um, readdress federal standards that are governing the safety of personal care products. Like we mentioned, they haven't been updated really since the 1930s. So we need these standards to be updated on a federal level. Um, we need the FDA to be able to regularly review the safety of cosmetic ingredients. So the same way that they could um, ban or recall um, drugs or certain foods if they're contaminated, we need the same protections for personal care products and for cosmetics. 
Um, and I think that we really need a framework where these chemicals are studied before they're added into products that we're using um, on our bodies and in our bodies and not sort of um, relying on um, companies self-policing. Um, because as you mentioned with PFAS, we now have a problem where this persistent pollutant is pretty much everywhere in the world. Um, and that didn't necessarily need to be so. Um, so I think that a framework where we're really studying chemicals before they become so ubiquitous would be a really important first step. Thanks for sharing that, Neha. These are definitely all reasonable, very realistic, you know, achievable suggestions. So definitely something that we hope, you know, advocacy continues in that direction to incorporate it, especially at the FDA level. It sounds like it would do a lot to increase protection for everybody, but especially for those in, you know, really susceptible communities or populations that are engaging with these kinds of materials or products on a daily basis. Um, before we wrap up, where can our listeners go to learn more? I know that you are writing a book that is to come out in November 2021. Where can we find that? Tell us more about it. Where else can we go to keep learning more? So, so I am working on a textbook with uh, several co-editors on women's health through the lifespan and, and particularly with a focus on uh, populations that have been marginalized and the environmental health risks that they face. And, and this is really geared towards health professionals and those that are concerned about the health risks. But I think day to day, uh, most people, it, for your personal care product use, I use um, the Environmental Working Group's uh, Skin Deep Cosmetics Database. That is really, I, at this point, have gotten to a point where I don't buy anything for myself, for my children, um, unless I've looked at it within that database. For people that are really interested also in sustainability, um, there's a certification called Cradle to Cradle, which I've started looking at as well, just to ensure, because it's not really just when we put the product on our bodies, but it's when we dispose of it as well, what's happening to that product and, and how is it being produced. You know, So it's really at the full circle of the supply chain that this Cradle to Cradle um, certifies. And then certain states have more stringent um, regulations. So California is one of those states and they have a safe cosmetics database. So that's also something that people can use before they make their own personal purchases. These are great suggestions. And Neha, thank you so much for all these insights. This is a really pressing issue in an area of environmental justice that seems a bit underexplored. We really appreciate you joining us today and teaching our listeners, definitely teaching me so much about disproportionate exposure from toxic beauty products and environmental justice. I want to just thank you so much for joining us today and lending your expertise to our podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. 
And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.